Just got to make sure everything's hooked up correctly. So if you will turn to John chapter 12. We've been in John chapter 12 for several weeks. It's a, it's a long chapter. But before we get into that, and I'll kind of, as I normally do, I'll give a runway or I'll give a context of where we're going to be. Uh, before I get into that, while you're turning there, uh, I do want to ask you one question. And you can respond on Facebook, that's fine, or just keep it in your mind. My question for you is, what do you fear? What is it that you fear most? What is it that you are afraid of? Because I think it's human nature that we are afraid of things. Even the, the bravest of people are fearful of something. Maybe it's a fear of death. Maybe it's a fear that your loved ones might get sick or that your loved ones will die. I mean, those are legitimate fears. But all of us have fears. I mean, we can't deny that. If you're sitting there thinking now, you're probably combing through the list of fears that you have. For some of you, it might be snakes. For some of you, like myself, it's heights or airplanes. Uh, there's a lot of those things. So, um, there's a lot of these things that are happening. Uh, sorry, I just got a phone call from your other elder, Austin. So <laughs> I, don't, I hope he's okay. So uh, anyway, what are you afraid of? What are your fears? For some, it's a lot of different things. Fears can cripple us at times. Fears can keep us from maybe having certain experiences or enjoying certain things in our life. And that's just the reality, right? That's the reality of what, of what fear does to us sometimes. So I, I did a little bit of research. I've done this before, and I found it fascinating. I wanted to look up some fears, some of the most common fears, and I wanted to kind of walk through this brief list with you. So there's a fear of heights, and all of these fears have been given names. And that tells you how common these things are. If, if fears are common enough that you give some crazy-sounding scientific name to it, or Latin name, or whatever it is, then you can know that. Uh, then, then you can know so uh, that these are uh, that these are common fears. So, fear of heights is uh, acrophobia. I guess that's where we get the word acrobat. And you don't think of an acrobat uh, without thinking of trapeze or without thinking of people that are flying high in the air. Aerophobia. The fear of airplanes. Now, I think airplanes are great. I think it's great modern technology. I think God has been so gracious in allowing man to advance to the degree that we have, we have you know, uh, aerodynamics and we can fly for hours and hours or days, you know, and that we can refuel in the sky, that we can take the, the word of God all the way around the world. I think it's absolutely fantastic. I don't like it <laughs> because I have a fear of Flying. I've been in planes, and planes always make noises that I don't think they're supposed to make. You know, there's buzzes and hums and dings and whistles and all kinds of stuff. One time, you know, one time I was on a plane, and I kept hearing this barking noise, and it scared, it scared me to death. Most likely it was a, a dog, I guess, that they had brought in under the plane, under the belly of the plane in baggage. But either way, I was, it, it gives me great fear. Um, ar arachnophobia, the fear of spiders. Many of you are like, don't say the word spiders, you know, because I won't be able to lay under my covers tonight because I'll feel things crawling on me. Uh, astrophobia, the fear of thunder and lightning. Now, I don't have this experience myself, but my, my Cheagle does, my Chihuahua Beagle mix. He's mortified of lightning and thunder. And we didn't know this until recently when it started raining a little bit and thundering a little bit. He, 
he, he, he curls under your feet and shakes like he's having a seizure. And we didn't know what was going on, so I looked up some research, or I did some research, and found out that it is common for uh, chihuahuas, especially, especially to, to have anxiety when it comes to storms. So my dog Mocha has astrophobia, the fear of thunder and of lightning. Uh, and then there's claustrophobia. You know, the fear of confined spaces, which are very, very common for people. Do you know that there's even a fear of beards? There's a fear of, of beards. Okay, not, not beer, not the beverage, beards. Okay, <laughs> beards. It's called uh, paganophobia. And I'd never heard of such a thing. And I, I, I don't think that I've met someone that's afraid of beards. I've, I've repelled people before, but I don't think it's because of my beard, or, or it might have been. But the most common fear, at least in the lists that I looked up, the common denominator was what's called glossophobia, which is the fear of uh, the fear of being. It's a social phobia or a fear of like public speaking. So that is a very very common fear. I remember being in college in a public speaking class, and there was a girl who got up there to give her speech. Now all she had to do was read it, but when she got up there, she couldn't utter a single word. Because she was so scared of being in public. She had such social anxiety that she could not overcome her fear. And in that moment, her fear enslaved her. It crippled her to where she couldn't even read her, her speech that she had written. And she, had, she, she burst out into tears, just uncontrollable sobbing. You know, and that was the first time that I'd seen that fear to that degree. So fear is commonplace for all of us. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Hopefully things are getting a bit better. But this has been reason for elevated fear in our lives. You know, uh, so fear is, fear is very common. It's, it, in a matter of fact, it's so common that it shouldn't come as a surprise to us that the Bible addresses fear over and over again. I mean, from Genesis to Revelation, fear is a, a hot topic of discussion. You know, I mean, there really are, you know, if you did research, you could find, you know, just just a ton. For example, Isaiah 35, uh, verse 4, John 14, 27, Joshua 1, 9, Matthew 6, 34, and on and on and on. The scriptures deal with fear over and over because fear is a very real thing. It's addressed so much because fear and the gospel are at odds against each other. Now, let me, let me, give, let me mention this. I believe there's a difference in a uh, fear that is born, uh, that, uh, fear that gives birth to wisdom, uh, fear that is good fear, fear that is, yes, this is, this is right fear. We fear the Lord, you know, uh, fear that causes us to protect our own or to protect ourselves. You know, that is a healthy fear. You know, you should not play in the street uh, with a blindfold on, you know, and because you understand that physics says you will get run over and you'll probably die. So you, you fear or you respect in that sense the dangers that are in the road should you go out and play in it. So there's a healthy fear, but there's also this fear that is born out of unbelief. So there's healthy fear, fear the Lord, and there's fear that's born out of unbelief. And this is the heart of Matthew 6, which is not our text for today, but it's Matthew 6 where Jesus labors to talk about why we don't have to fear or be anxious. Now, the fear that Jesus is talking about is the fear that's connected to his sovereign power. He's not saying don't have a healthy respect for the natural and rightful dangers in the world. He's saying 
you need to trust me and my sovereignty and my provisions more than anything else. You need to hold that in higher regard or higher esteem than all of your other concerns or all of your other fears. So that's the heart of Matthew chapter 6, is that if we succumb to our fears or surrender to our fears more than we trust the care and the provision of Jesus, then we, we fall into sin. That's where worry and anxiety become sin. But there's obviously worry and anxiety that are right and wise. Uh, so the Bible addresses these things for good reason because it's commonplace. But here's the issue. There's a tremendous incompatibility between the saints of God and the fears of men. There's a incompatibility between the fears of God, I'm sorry, the, 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 the saints of God and the fear of men. And so you may be wondering, why are we talking about fear? Why are we starting off this way? Well, let me explain to you what's happening in the text. So in John chapter 12, verse 36 is where we begin. Now, those aren't the verses that I'm going to teach. That'll be next week. But I want to share with you what's happening in John chapter 12, verse 20 or 36. So a little bit of a context here. Last week, we looked at the... the the wrath of God and the hope of the gospel, okay? And in that text that we saw last week, Jesus, Jesus addresses two groups of people. He addresses believers and he addresses non-believers. And to the non-believers, he issues this warning, this threat. And he says, listen, the judgment of this world is at hand. And he's telling these unbelievers, your time is narrowing. If you pass away in that unbelief, there is no hope for you. There will be judgment. Jesus goes before the Father and he says, please take this away from me. He says, you know, just like Gethsemane, can this cup pass from me? And Jesus is speaking of the agony of enduring and appeasing the wrath of God. So this is what Jesus is talking about. So there's this wrath element, but then there's this hope, hopeful gospel element towards the end where Jesus addresses those who are believers and he basically says, listen, when I am raised up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. So there's hope in the gospel, even though there's wrath for those who do not believe. Well, Jesus just said these words, and now this is where the text picks up. So I'm going to start in verse 36. It says, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. And then Jesus says, when Jesus, or John says, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and he hid himself from them. So Jesus is out of the picture now, at least from these people and then John gives us some commentaries. It says, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Now listen, this will be discussed next week, but I want you to tune in because what I'm about to read for many is a very hard pill to swallow. So next week, we'll start to unpack what it means, but I want you to listen to this. This is John who's reflecting on the teachings of Isaiah. Isaiah, who was spoken to by God to make this prophecy. Therefore, they could not believe, for Isaiah said, listen, therefore they could not believe, for again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Now, that's strong language. And again, I'm not getting into this until next week, but just suffice it to say that what John is saying of Isaiah and what Isaiah has said about God 
is that God has closed eyes and he's hardened hearts. The reason these people aren't believing is because God has hardened their hearts, just like he did Pharaoh. Now more on that next week, but I want to follow along. Listen to verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear, here it is, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So they did what? They believed, according to the scriptures. These authorities, they believed. Now, I don't know definitively in what way they believed. It doesn't say, but it says they believed, but they were unwilling to confess it. They were unwilling to confess it because they had fear of the Pharisees. And their fear was that they would be put out of the synagogue. It says, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And that's a strong statement. They love the glory of man more than they love the glory of God. What a testimony of the depraved nature of humanity. What a testimony of the, the wickedness and the depravity of the, of, the, of the heart, especially the heart before that heart of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh. You know, that, 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 we, would, that we would desire the glory of creatures more than we would desire the glory of the creator. You know, it just shows that the enemy has, through sin, has completely turned everything that's right on its head. He's, a, he's completely perverted God's paradigm that he has set in place for his ultimate glory. And, and sin interrupted all of these things. So, so we go back. So here's where I want to zero in on. So the next week we'll deal with all of those other things. But what you need to hear is that fear crept into the lives of these believers. Fear crept into these authorities to the point that they were unwilling to confess Jesus. They were unwilling to let it be known to vocalize their faith in Jesus because they were afraid of men. They were afraid that these men would cast them out of the synagogue. To be a part of the synagogue, especially to be an authority or an official of the synagogue, was, was a lofty place. It was a place where you would receive the glory of men, the affirmations and the prestige. And they didn't want to give that up. They didn't want to leave that behind. And fear had crippled these men from doing what was right, and that was to proclaim before their peers their belief in Christ. I mean, do you not remember what Jesus said? And let this be a warning. Jesus said, you know, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father who is in heaven. But then he says, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father who is in heaven. So they're playing for, these are high stakes that are going on in this game that they're playing. So that's the text. So you have these unbelievers, and they are addressed through John's commentary by saying that they were succumbing to the fears of men. And that's why I want to deal with the issue of fear today, specifically the fear of men. So here's my objective, and I have one point to this sermon. So here's my objective. I want to discuss the implications of fear as well as to see the practical application towards eradicating or removing the fear that's in our lives. Let me read it one more time. Today's objective is to discuss the implications of fear as well as to see the practical application towards eradicating or removing fear that is in our lives. Because that's what we want, right? We want to get rid of these fears. I mean, even, even legitimate fears, even fears that say, you know, I want to take care of my family, which is a legitimate fear, but there's a right way and a wrong way to, to, to coexist with that fear in your life. There's a, there's a way that has a respect, and there's a way that fear gives birth to wisdom and right decision-making and good choices. 
And then there's the fear that says, you know what, I, I, you know, I, I'm crippled by this. I, I succumb to this. And so what happens, I start sinking in the water just like Peter when he took his eyes off of Christ. So we want to talk about how we can eradicate that kind of fear in our life. So my hope is that this sermon is going to be um, highly practical and helpful for you. So a few things that I want you to know about the fear of men. Okay, When we think of the fear of men, I don't know about you, but as far as I'm concerned, my, my default mode is to say, you know, my fear is for my personal safety, or my fear is for my family's or friends' personal safety. So that's what comes into my mind when I think fear, specifically the fear of men. You know, so I go uh, out witnessing, I go out to evangelize, to engage people, even sometimes hostile people towards the gospel. And there's something in me that says, okay, I hope that this doesn't become a hostile situation. I hope, that, I hope that this doesn't become ugly, and I hope that I walk away unscathed. I mean, I really hope that. I don't, I don't want to be a martyr in that sense. I don't want to be persecuted physically in that sense. I, j- I don't want to be. I don't want to experience that. I want to engage people, and it go great. I want them to ask questions, and I want them to show extreme interest and love everything that, that the Bible has to say. That's, that's what I want. That's the ideal situation for me, but that's not the way that it always goes, is it? Right? We have to go in knowing that we are entering hostile territory because the enemy is at war against us always. So there's this fear that creeps up. But what I want to explain to you is that fear is not specific to our personal health or safety. But fear is a threat. The fear of men is a threat to all kinds of things. So let me walk through a few things that will hopefully help you to see a little further into how fear manifests itself into your life. So so here's a few things. So for these believing authorities, the fear of man was more over a fear of being put out of the synagogue, but that's not always the case with people when they succumb to fear. The fear of man pertains to a threat to anything. Do you understand? Anything that you see as a threat can produce fear in your life. And oftentimes... Men are the source of that threat. Not just that they can harm you, but that they can do a lot of other things as well. So let me explain what I mean. Sometimes fear is for us the threat to our comforts. Fear is a threat to our comforts. We're afraid that we might have to actually fight or to labor for what is right. I I said a moment ago, I would love for every witnessing or evangelistic encounter would be for me to just show up and people have all these questions, for those to gather around me and just say, tell us everything that you, that you know, just unpack this verse or explain the Bible here, give us the gospel, give us the gospel. I wish they would say, tell me how glorious Jesus is, explain to me how good he is so that I can understand and so that I can believe. But that's not how it goes. Sometimes you go and they have, uh, they want to argue with you. Sometimes you go and you feel like you're going to get punched in the throat. You know, uh, I took some students out once upon a time and, and we stood before this guy that I really, I really thought he was going to swing on me. And, uh, and that's just how it goes sometimes. But the problem is sometimes fear creeps in and it keeps me at home because it's more comfortable for me to be passive on my couch and I'll just pray for the souls of men rather than engage engage people in conversation and actively fight for the souls of men rather than just be theoretical, right? So there, there is a difference, you know, but sometimes fear creeps in and it keeps me from doing that, you know, because 
It's a threat to my comfort. It might be a threat to my comfort. Listen, when you, be- you never know. When you become vocal about God, it might change everything. You might have people doing all kinds of stuff. I remember at the church that we were a part of before, you know, we went through some tough times, some church discipline type situations and stuff like that. And, uh, and, and there were voodoo curses placed all around the church, and they do this by forming these rock formations. And we did some research to find out that that is actually what was happening. I got to tell you, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. But if I'm being dead honest, it made me a little uncomfortable to know that the enemy is using people to try and place voodoo hexes or curses on a church that's trying to do a, a biblical thing. And so it's a threat to my comfort. We're afraid that man will press the issue of our faith if we are vocal, but it's so much easier being passive and being quiet sometimes. It's so much easy, easier to just stay home because it's comfortable. And so the fear of men is not just that, oh, I'm afraid they're going to physically harm me, but that it's going to be a threat to my comfort. Listen, there's another threat, a threat to how we are perceived by others. The fear of men is a fear, not because it's a threat to our safety, but it's a threat to how we are perceived. So, so maybe I'll touch a nerve on this one. If I do, great. Um, we would be lying. Well, I would be lying if I said I do not care, I, that I never care what other people think about me. Because I do. And for the most part, so do you. You care what other people think. That's why... You practice good hygiene. That's why you dress yourself and you leave the house. That's why you instruct your kids to behave a certain way because they are a reflection of what? Of the way you've raised them. They are a reflection of who? They reflect you. That's why when my kids misbehave, sometimes it drives me nuts because I'm like, you're misrepresenting me. It's the same way with us. It's the same way with our relationship to Jesus is that we are a reflection of Christ and so sometimes that means that we're vocal, and some t- sometimes that means we are confrontational. Sometimes it means that we put ourselves in harm's way for the sake of the gospel. But sometimes we don't do that. We succumb to fear because doing so is a threat to how we are perceived by others. Maybe they will look at us as though we are weak. Because Christians come along, and they start talking about peace, and they start talking about joy and they start talking about all these things that real men don't talk about you know um, uh, maybe they will perceive us as being goody goodies because nobody wants to be a goody goody right nobody wants to be that person nobody wants to be that guy or that girl you know we don't want to be goody goodies I don't know if you've sorry ever been called that in your life but it's it's it, it's not a in- term of endearment <laughs> it's pejorative it's derogative in most cases for somebody to say oh you're just a goody goody meaning that you know what you're a dud you don't want to have fun you're trying to kill all of our fun you know maybe we're afraid that others will see that or, or, or perceive us to be delusional you know we don't want to be vocal about our faith because they'll think we're crazy we're nutcases yeah i don't talk about don't talk about the blood definitely don't sing about the blood don't do all that you know, don't, what's this baptism business? Why are you dunking people in water? You know, um, why, why are we doing that? You know, I pray that my response to people is never, ah, well, yeah, us Christians are crazy sometimes. I pray that, that my response is thoughtful and considerate, and it actually helps inform someone as to what it is to be a genuine follower of 
Christ and that I would not succumb to fear. Maybe we're afraid that others will view us as weird or pretentious. Nobody wants to be that. Nobody wants to be looked at as though you're pretentious. But that's, but that's sometimes what the fear of men produces. We, we are afraid of men because they are a threat to how we're perceived and we don't want to be perceived as being pretentious. Maybe we're afraid that others will perceive us as ignorant or arrogant. I mean, I don't want to be thought of as ignorant. You know, I mean, I've talked to atheists before that would look at me and say, you're an idiot. You're just ignorant. How can you believe what you believe? Open your eyes. You know, you're delusional. You're a fool. You're chasing fairy tales. I don't like that. (laughs) I would assume you don't like that either. We can't afford to succumb to the fear that we are threatened as far as how we are perceived. Maybe we're afraid that others will perceive that we're unapproachable. Maybe that'll be what happens. And that's not what we want or that's not what we need. So it's a threat to how we're perceived by others. You get that, right? I mean, again, we're, we, we fear men sometimes, but not because they can harm us, but we fear men. Why? Because men can harm us with their words. Uh, men can say things. Men can posture themselves, not in a volatile way, physically, but in a way that, that, that plays on our psyche or our emotions or our thought processes. And so sometimes we are crippled by that fear and, we, and we, we won't move forward and we become silent, we become passive because the fear of men is a threat to how we're perceived by others. It's also a threat to our relationships. We're afraid that others will withdraw from us you know, maybe, we're not, maybe we have this friendship and we're unwilling to engage in this relate. We're unwilling to engage in this gospel conversation. We're unwilling to press the issue. Because let, let me be clear, I'm all about building rapport. I, I, I completely affirm taking time, building rapport, connecting with people, earning a place to speak in their life. Uh, but let me be clear, the gospel doesn't have to earn any place in anybody's life. Okay, the, the, the gospel's power and it is not contingent upon someone's uh, acceptance. It's not contingent upon someone allowing it to enter their life or, or, uh, or, or offering their ear to hear what the gospel is about, okay? So let me be clear about that. But having said that, I think sometime we're crippled by fear, the fears of men, and that we, we, we withdraw from being vocal about our faith because we don't want people to withdraw from us. We cherish these relationships. We covet, I don't want to say covet, we, we care and love these relationships. And sometimes these relationships prove to be the worst thing because they keep us from being forward about the gospel. In other words, they keep us from fulfilling the mission that Jesus gave us. And one day I will stand before God, and I don't know how he's going to ask the question, but the account will be, did I favor my relationships more than I favor the souls of men. And I don't want fear to keep me at bay to the point where I have to confess and give the account that, yes, God, I treasured the creature over creator. I had a friend in high school that, um, that I began giving the gospel to. Um, Unfortunately, the first part of my relationship to this friend was, was not a healthy relationship, and then the, and then the Lord changed me. Um, I repented of some things, and, and, and I began to give this person the gospel, began to try to be more 
intentional and vocal about my faith and the faith that they needed in Christ. Sorry. <laughs> the faith that they needed in Christ. And they did not like that. And they did not want to hear that at all. And that was hard for me because I had this truth and I wanted them to get it. And it ended up estranging me from this person. And we haven't spoken in years and years and years. There was no falling out. It was I mean, distance and all these other things. But you could tell that the person that God was making me was not at that time the person that God was making that person. And so there was an incompatibility there. There was a lightness and a darkness issue that were happening. And that wasn't good. Um, uh, just a, a brief note, I see a lot of people that have logged on, maybe logged off or are watching uh, that I haven't seen or talked to in a while. Um, everybody that's on there, so good to see you. So glad that you're tuning in uh, right now or for however long. So we're talking about the fears of men um, and why, uh, why and how we need to eradicate those fears so that we can live in the freedom that Christ provides and in confidence of his, of his power. So... So that's a threat to our relationships. We're afraid that our, some of these, to be honest, these superficial relationships, we're afraid, afraid that we'll lose them. We're afraid, we're afraid that we'll lose them on account of the gospel. And how awful is that? Sometimes we're afraid that our godliness will lead to loneliness. And we choose we choose to forsake godliness because we're afraid of loneliness. Because I just want to be honest, in a manner of speaking, being strong in your faith and vocal about your faith, it may cut you off from people. People might withdraw from you. And in that sense, you might be lonely in that regard. But in the grand scheme of things, Ultimately, there really is no loneliness. If you are a part of Christ's church and you have unity with the saints, right, who are joined together in the bond of peace, according to Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. So the fear of men is really a threat to our relationships, a threat to our comfort. It's a threat to how we are perceived by others. And finally, it's a threat to our livelihood, or it can be perceived as a threat to our livelihood. Listen, when you become vocal about your faith, when you say, you know what, I'm going to suppress the fears of men, and I'm going to dial into my confidence in Christ, and my confidence in His commands, and what He's told me to do, and whatever comes to pass, you know, my obedience, you know, is, is what matters most than any kind of earthly consequence that I might have to face head on. So, we could lose our job if we were vocal about our faith, right? I could lose my job if I'm vocal, vocal about my faith. I might be arrested one day for posting a, a sermon on, 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 online just like this, you know, because in some places, this kind of language or language from the Bible is considered hate literature. And so uh, I have to be aware and square up to the reality that reality that, that might be coming sooner or later, and the time might come where I have to say, will I succumb to the fears of men or will I swear allegiance to the power of God and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ? The fear of man is real. 
you know, it, it, it is real. Fear is a part of human nature. We are broken, we are fallen, so naturally there are fears that come with that. But the biggest problem is not your fear, but your unbelief. You understand what I'm saying? The biggest fear, the biggest problem is not your fear. The biggest problem is your and my unbelief. Because unbelief is the root that produces the fruit of fear. And there's a mechanics to this. There's a way that these things work. So let me explain to you. I'm going to go through the list I just gave you, and I'm going to explain how unbelief works in relationship to these items that I just gave you. So again, these Pharisees, if you're just joining with us from John chapter 12, verses 36 through, uh, through 40, uh, 42 or 43, specifically verses 41, 42, and 43. If you're just joining with us, just so that you know, the Pharisees or the authorities who believed on Jesus Christ, they were unwilling to confess their belief. They were unwilling to vocalize this because they were afraid of the Pharisees. They had a fear of men, and their fear was that they would be cast out of the synagogue. And that fear translates to many things. It's a threat to many things like comfort, like uh, social status, popularity. It's a threat to all of these kind of things. So let me walk through how these things are rooted in unbelief. So here's the mechanics of unbelief in relationship to the fear uh, that is promoted by men. So a threat to comfort. This fear is the belief that you are actually comfortable. So we think that we're actually comfortable. And so we've defined comfort in this certain way. And I'm not trying to be philosophical. Uh, but understand that we, we have defined terms for ourselves. We think sometimes passivity is comfort. We think all of these things uh, are comfort, and to a degree, yes, but to a degree, no. Or, or, so this fear is the belief that you are actually comfortable, or that God cannot give you comfort on his terms, but that you must have it on your own terms. Understand this. Maybe your belief or unbelief is that God cannot give you comfort on his terms, but that you must have it on your own terms. And see, that's a dangerous place to be when you say, I'm going to define comfort. I'm going to live according to what's comfortable for me, you know, rather than let God bring me where he wants me to be. Okay, so uh, for, well... So uh, an illustration that I wrote down is sometimes we don't know how bad we feel. (laughs) Sometimes we don't know how sick we are or how out of shape we are or how bad we feel until we start getting in shape or getting healthy. You know, if you're used to eating bad foods and then all of a sudden you start eating good foods, over time you're going to start feeling much, much better. And then you'll realize, you know what, I didn't realize that I could feel this good. So when you felt poorly, you didn't even know it because you didn't really have anything at close proximity to compare it to. So many of us think, hey, we're in a safe place. We're in a good place. We're in a joyful place. I'm comfortable. You don't know that there's something better. You know, uh, w- when, I went out to the, uh, when I went out to the abortion clinic with the guys uh, last Saturday and and, you know, having conversations with people, gospel conversations with people out there, engaging people with the gospel, you know, uh, there, there is a degree of discomfort out there because you know what you're up against in terms of the enemy and the world. But there's something that comes over you that's of, of, of utmost comfort because you are 
You are doing what God has set you out to do. You see, sometimes we don't know what that's like because we stay back here. We're not vocal, we're not expressive, we're not open and honest about our faith because we're threatened, because we're fearful, because we want to hold on to these relationships that might be superficial or not. And this is a bad, bad thing, right? So, so here's the mechanics of this unbelief, a threat to comfort, a threat to how we are perceived by others. Stay with me just a little while longer. This is a threat to how we are perceived by others. Here's how this unbelief works. This is the, un- the unbelief here is that we are failing to believe that how God perceives us matters more than how man perceives us. You see, the Pharisees in this text, they love the glory of man more than they love the glory of God. So their unbelief was that God's glory wasn't good enough. That what God thought of them and how God perceived them wasn't good enough compared to what man thought of them. What matters at the end of all things is that God commends us in Christ when we give an account for our lives. So that's how unbelief works with regards to the the threat to how we are perceived by others. Now, look at the threat to our relationships. The unbelief here is this that we fail to believe that the relationship between man and God takes a premium over, uh, over man, right? So the unbelief here is that we fail to believe that the relationship between man and God takes a premium over the relationship between man and man. God's relationship always trumps and have, has preeminence over man's relationship. But if you cling so tightly to that relationship to where you succumb to fear, it's because in that moment, you believe that man's relationship is better than your relationship to God. Because we always act in accordance to what we most believe at the moment. A threat to our popularity, a threat to our social status. This unbelief here is that God's approval and affirmation is of lesser value than man's approval or affirmation. So what we fail to believe when we are crippled by the threat to our popularity, by the fear of men, by the threat of our popularity, the threat that man brings to our popularity, because man can posture himself a certain way, man can say certain things and do certain things. When we succumb to that, there is unbelief that God's approval and affirmation is of lesser value. And that's just not the case. Because God's approval and God's glory and God's affirmation should always be our top priority. Not the affirmation or the cares or concerns of men. Sometimes we function as though earthly or social popularity actually matters. Sometimes we act this way. Sometimes we act as though our Facebook friendships actually count for something before God Almighty. We act like our YouTube subscribers count more, more than, than how we are esteemed or affirmed by God or our Instagram followers. I mean, this is what social media has done with us. And I'm not saying social media is the devil, but we have to be careful because we sometimes find our affirmation, we sometimes find our joy, and we sometimes find our worth in our subscribers, in our friendships, and in our followers. And that is dead wrong 
because our worth is in the gospel and in Christ alone because he has made us such. And then there's the threat to our livelihood, and this is simply the unbelief that God is in control. If I'm vocal about my faith, I'll lose my job. I'm not saying don't use wisdom. I'm not saying don't be strategic. I'm not saying don't be careful and find ways to give the gospel without losing your job because you have a family to support. We have occupational integrity and responsibilities. So I'm not saying throw caution to the wind and go and do whatever it is that you want to do. But what I am saying is that if we're not careful, the unbelief creeps in that we don't trust God's control. And fear grips us and it cripples us and it enslaves us. So fear is clearly an issue. Unbelief is clearly an issue. So, so here's, the, here's the final portion of this one point sermon and that's to talk about how we respond to this fear. We have to find a way to eradicate or to remove this fear, which is a part of my objective from earlier. And so I have two answers I want to give to what we can do or what we can implement in a practical way so that, we can, so that we can start washing away or eradicating this fear that often cripples us. So here's answer number one. How do we eradicate this fear? Answer number one. When our esteem or our regard for Christ is greater than our esteem or regard for ourselves, then we can be free from the fear of men. So here it is. When we can esteem Christ more, when we can see Christ as having greater and higher value than ourselves or our relationships or our comforts or our cares or concerns or how others perceive us, if we can get there, that's when we can start to chip away at this fear that enslaves us. Because when Christ truly has the preeminence in our lives, we won't care. And how do you get Christ to have preeminence? Because he has preeminence already. But there's Christ having preeminence because that's who he is, the sovereign Lord, and, and everything is, is under his foot. But then there's your life in relationship to Christ as though we're saying you have preeminence. You know, you function as the preeminent one in my life, meaning that I deny myself, meaning that I give myself over to you daily, that I am a repenter, that I do these things so that you may have the preeminence. And when that happens, guess what? You don't care about your comforts as much. You don't care what other people think about you. You don't care about these relationships, superficial or not, that you place such high regard on. And you won't so much care about your livelihood because the higher regard you get for Christ, and the lower regard, the more increase towards God, the more decrease of yourself, the more preeminence Christ has, and the more your vantage point and your perspective changes with regard to this fear in your life. That's how you eradicate that. Listen, Christ functions preeminently for us when we deny ourselves. That's, that's how you give Christ preeminence. Yes, you give Christ preeminence theoretically in thought, but in your actions, you deny yourself. Deny yourself your most natural inclinations towards sin. By denying ourselves, we are denying ourselves as the center and making Christ the center. That is what happens when you deny yourself. To say, I desire to do these things that are contrary to God, but I will say no to those things through the power of Jesus for the glory of Jesus. That is functioning with Christ as preeminence. Because denying ourselves according to Christ is to deny ourselves with the explicit purpose of following Jesus. You see, it's all linked together. 
When we deny ourselves daily in this way, we can then esteem and regard Christ as greater than ourselves, and there we can find freedom from fear. They're all linked. It all connects together. It's, 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 it's really remarkable, to be honest with you. So that's answer one. The question, again, is how do we eradicate this fear? How do we remove this fear of man? How do we chip away at this? How do we get rid of these things? Answer number two is this. We can remove or eradicate this fear with or through the strengthening of our faith. You understand what I'm saying? We can eradicate this fear by the strengthening of our faith. Listen to this. When fear diminishes, well, let me say it this way. Fear diminishes as faith strengthens. When our faith gets stronger, our fear gets weaker because the two are incompatible. The two are not good bedfellows. They cannot coexist. We have fear And when we have fear, that is indicative of a weaker faith. But a stronger faith seems to cause fear to diminish. You saw when Peter was out on the water, fear fear kind of capsized him. Fear kind of took over. At first, there was great faith and confidence in Jesus. But then you see this fear starting to creep in. So what happens? Cause and effect. Peter begins to sink because Peter couldn't have great faith and great fear at the same time. At least I don't think, if I'm wrong in that, someone help me, but I don't think it works that way. Faith becomes stronger when it is exercised. I think of the illustration of a rock climber. A rock climber, when he climbs, uh, you know, there's rock climbing, there's free climbing, there's climbing where you already set the ropes, and then there's climbing with someone who's who's uh who, who there's there's climbing with a belay i think i'm saying that right there's someone down there that holds the rope as you climb so that if you slip they have the rope and you're fine so if i'm climbing which i probably wouldn't do that because i have a fear of heights right acrophobia but if i'm climbing a rock i'm going to be really hoping that my belay is paying attention that the person holding that rope is paying attention so that if i slip or if i fall i'm not going to plummet to my death you know, that, that I'm going to be okay. And I'm going to tell you what, the first time that I go up there, I am exercising my faith in the person holding the rope. But I'm going to be a little timid because it's my first time to exercise that kind of trust and that kind of faith. But as I do it more and more and more, I will get more and more comfortable and confident in the one who has the rope. And so my faith will get stronger. Why? Because it's tested. I think also of airborne rangers. I have a former pastor and friend who who was an airborne ranger and he had, you know, a number of of jumps. A lot of those guys in the airborne division, I guess, they have, you know, just hundreds of jumps from a plane, if not thousands. You know, and I talked to him yesterday about some of his jumps from a plane and I got to thinking about what it would take to to jump again and again and again. And what's happening there is that the first time you exit the plane with a parachute, you are really putting your faith to the test. Faith in what? Faith in whom? You're trusting not necessarily the parachute, but the rigger. Those are the names of, those are the guys that that actually rigged the chute. You're trusting that the guy or girl who rigged the chute did it properly so that when you pull the ripcord, the chute will eject as it's supposed to and help you to land safely on the ground. Now, I'm sure the first time jumping out of that plane under somebody of normal mind might be a little nervous, hoping that they did this thing the right way. They may not be afraid of falling, but they're afraid of, I don't want to hit the ground and die. So they're really hoping that this thing has worked. But I can guarantee you after 20, 30, 40, 50, 100, 1,000 jumps, 
and every single time, whether the main parachute or the backup worked and uh, allowed them to land safely, their confidence grows. Why? Because it's tested over and over and over again. It is tested, and this is the way that we eradicate fear. If you actively, not just theoretically, but if you actively display your confidence and your trust in the gospel and in Christ and in God's sovereignty, the more and in whatever scenario, the more that you do that, though it might be difficult, the greater or stronger your faith will be. And by necessity, the weaker your fear will become. Is this not the heart of what James says in James chapter 1. He says in verse one, two, uh, chapter 1, verse 2 through 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or perseverance, is another word, and let perseverance have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Faith that is tested is faith that develops perseverance. You see, that's what happened. James is saying your faith gets tested over and over and over again. Witnessing encounters, life and death experiences for the gospel, whatever it is, whatever your trial is, whether it's a sickness or a virus, and you're saying, God, you're in control, you're in control. You have no choice but to say, I trust you. I actively place my faith in you and my life in your hands today and hopefully tomorrow. And when that happens over and over and over again, your, str- your faith strengthens and therefore your fear diminishes. A faith that perseveres is a faith that grows stronger. Therefore, a strengthened faith results in a diminished fear. You see, when we succumb to fear, we succumb to unbelief. Unbelief is the root that produces the fruit of fear. We have to attack our areas of unbelief so that fear stays at bay. The testing and the exercising of our faith is how we strengthen our faith. It's how perseverance is developed. And when perseverance is developed, faith is stronger. And when faith is stronger, fear is weaker. You may say, Alan, I get it. I need to exercise my faith that it may be stronger. But what do I do specifically? Let me help you very briefly. First of all, I'm not saying put the Lord to the test. But I am saying to work to eradicate fear so that it doesn't lead you into sin. So let's take evangelism. Here's, a, here's an application. It's a big one because evangelism tends to ring all the fear bear bells for a lot of people. It's confrontational at times. It's a potential safety hazard. Uh, there's a risk of being shamed. There's a risk of your pride being shot. Um, it's, it's public speaking. There's a lot of there's a lot of fear bells that start to ring when we start to consider engaging people with the gospel. But how you exercise your faith is, and I, I, don't, I don't mean to oversimplify this, but yes, you, you study, prepare, memorize verses, you know, watch apologetics, whatever it is that you want to do to prepare, but at some point you have to go for it. You get out there and you engage people and you love people. And you share with them truth. And you plead for truth in their lives. And you plead with God that truth would take root. Trust that God has given you the tools. Trust that God will bring you, that God will bring the increase and that you might just be faithful in planting and watering. It's simple. You just do it. 
And the more you do it, the more you engage, the more you have these conversations, keeping in mind, you can't, your primary concern cannot be, uh, I don't want people to withdraw from this relationship. Eventually, you have to engage them. What if you spend your entire life shielding this relationship, what you've essentially, and, and they end up dying separated from Christ. What you've ultimately done is you've shielded the relationship from the gospel. So you can't afford to do that. Sickness and death, another thing we're afraid of. An increased faith looks like pressing into the person, the power, and the promises of God. A growing confidence in God's power will help to lessen the concern for yourself because he's going to keep you better than you can keep yourself. Read the scriptures, read biographies and autobiographies of the countless men and women that God has rescued from the clutches of death. God's work is seen all around the world. Familiarize yourself with these things and then experience these things and faith will be strengthened. And when faith is strengthened, fear is weakened. There are tons of examples, a ton of principles just like this. Well, let me close by saying this. The more that you jump, the more you learn to trust the ones who have packed the parachute. When you do this, you can watch your fears diminish as your faith strengthens. Let's pray. Father, be glorified in our confidence, but not our confidence in you, but our confidence, I'm sorry, not our confidence in ourselves, but our confidence in you, our confidence in the gospel, our confidence in your power and your provisions and your promise. Lord, help us to consider the cost both of sharing the gospel but also to refrain and be passive and just be theoretical in our sincerity. Lord, I pray that you would convict my heart and the hearts of others where we need that most and that you would prompt us to action so that we can reflect you in our words and in our deeds and not just in theory, not just in what we believe, but Lord, I pray that our belief will give birth to right action that rightly represents you. Lord, I do pray that you would bring the church together physically soon and that we don't have to do this distancing for much longer. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. See you soon. Mm-hmm. <laughs>